Good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan LaFollette. I'm one of the assistant residency directors here at the University of Cincinnati, uh, and I help co-manage Tammy the Shrew with Jeff Hill. And happy to be making my debut onto the podcast end of the site. Today, we'll be introducing a new kind of podcast uh, based on some of the key literature, and our second-year residents undergo a lot of preparation and literature review uh, to discuss a new protocol, and a lot of this is cutting edge. Today, I will be joined by two of our second-year residents, uh, Dr. Sean Hardy and Dr. Uh, Joshua Gauger, uh, who have been spending the last couple of months looking through all of the cardiac arrest literature to help break apart several of the things that we do every day and some of the things that are on the horizon as far as cardiac arrest is concerned. And we will certainly be moving well beyond what ACLS recommends here. Um, so it's important to um, remember some of the keys of cardiac arrest management. Um, so Dr. Uh, Gauger, do you want to walk us through kind of some of the important things to remember as far as um, cardiac arrest? Yeah. So some of the important things to remember far, as far as cardiac arrest uh, are, the, are the big things, early defibrillation and high-quality chest compressions. Um, a lot of this data actually comes from a three-phase model of cardiac arrest, uh, three phases being the electrical phase, the circulatory phase, and the metabolic phase. Uh, the electrical phase is sort of the first four to five minutes of cardiac arrest um, where there isn't any ischemia yet. Uh, the body is not yet um, acidotic. Everything is essentially still working as normal. Uh, and this, a lot, a lot of this data comes from implantable cardiac defibrillators, actually. And um, how when patients go into a uh, VTAC or a VFib, uh, these early defibrillations are about 95 to 99% successful in preventing what would be a lethal rhythm. Um, so in these first four to five minutes of cardiac arrest, defibrillation is really the most important aspect. And then moving into the four to 10 minute range, this is where defibrillation becomes a little um, less successful. And that's likely due to the fact that there's a lack of uh, cardiac perfusion um, and coronary artery perfusion. Uh, this is called the circulatory phase, and this is when uh, high-quality compressions and limiting pauses is the most important, um, increasing that coronary artery perfusion so that we can prevent the downstream ischemia, acidosis, and things of that nature. After about 10 minutes, defibrillations become uh, pretty uh, useless without um, coronary artery perfusion, and this is called the metabolic phase. This is where the body is undergoing global hyperperfusion, ischemia, severe acidosis. And that's why high-quality chest compressions and early defibrillation um, are so important because they can prolong the time that it takes to get into this metabolic phase. Unfortunately, uh, most of the patients that are rolling into us are at, at or after this 10-minute uh, period. So without early high-quality chest compressions and early cardiac defibrillation, um, our efforts and the chance of uh, achieving a good outcome significantly decrease. Great. So early defibrillation, high-quality CPR. Um, and we're talking primarily about medical patients. Um, did you focus on in-hospital, pre-hospital? What patient population did you guys focus on? Yeah, so we focused on non-traumatic, non-hypothermic medical arrests that were out of hospital just rolling into the door to see us in the ED. Let's uh, take the focus on uh, ultrasound for a second. Always a hot topic. Uh, 
the literature is interestingly sparse in intra-arrest cardiac uh, ultrasound. Um, there are kind of two ways that I think people tend to use it. One is kind of diagnosis right up front, and then two is termination of arrest, kind of the cardiac standstill. Um, do you want to walk through how you guys have maybe the summary of how you recommend using it, and then we can use it to break apart in the two kind of common indications? So we recommend having a two-person ultrasound team. Uh, one person is going to be getting a good window, getting a good view, while the other person is standing at the ultrasound machine and getting ready to obtain a clip. Uh, so again, this is while compressions are ongoing, you are not interrupting compressions. Uh, and this is a separate team from the airway team and the resuscitation leaders. Uh, so essentially at that first rhythm check, uh, when compression stop, you already have your window and you have a separate person counting down and obtaining a good clip uh, so as to not interrupt compressions. And then no one's even trying to interpret it, interpret that video uh, until uh, the pulse check's over and we resume compressions. And what, uh, from either literature you saw or, or anecdotally talked to ultrasound, um, our ultrasound team, what views would you recommend or have been proven successful in this setting? Yeah, I would go for a sub-xiphoid approach or a uh, apical four. Apical four is a little harder to get. Uh, the issue you run into when you try to get a peristernal long is pads are frequently right there, especially when you use the AP pad placement. Um, and in addition, you have the compressor compressor's hands right there, and if you get a lot of gel there, it can get kind of slippery. And certainly these are all surrogates for TEE, which would be a much more optimal approach, which would also not uh, interrupt compressions, uh, or at least our shop's not, not there quite yet. Um, but what did you see about the, its actual utility in the setting of cardiac arrest? Yeah, so I found that it's much better than a pulse check. Um, I looked into a couple papers that show we're essentially both pre-hospital providers, doctors, nurses, we're not that accurate at getting uh, a good pulse. Uh, and so when you put a probe on the chest and can actually see cardiac activity or no cardiac activity, and essentially, uh, especially see whether this PEA is a quote-unquote pseudo-PEA and there's actually... Um, a cardiac activity with just profound hypotension and shock uh, versus what you think is asystole is really a very fine V-fib. Um, it shows that the pulse check is much better. You can look for that cardiac activity. Um, there's literature to suggest that you can prognosticate based on your first view and what you see in terms of cardiac activity. The paper I focused on was Gaspari's um, paper from just a couple years ago uh, who whose goal was to look at cardiac activity and determine whether those patients do better. Um, and so that was an observational study of patients in cardiac arrest who got a ultrasound up front and at the end, it was a protocol-driven observational study. Uh, and it showed um, significantly increased ROSC admission and uh, survival to discharge um, with odds ratios uh, 3, 3.6, and 5.7 respectively. So uh, very good evidence that cardiac activity um, shows good survival. Were those sequentially enrolled or was there a selection bias in those patients? Uh, those were sequentially enrolled patients. Um, they were unblinded, uh, so they were in real time using it and interpreting the results. Uh, there was a um, 
separate reviewer um, at separate institutions that looked at it, and there was um, substantial um, agreement between what they saw. Gotcha. So recommendation, use it up front, first pulse check, both to prognosticate as well as to diagnose. Um, Do you see any data about kind of termination of resuscitation and the setting of cardiac standstill? So there's small studies that say if you see no cardiac activity at all, uh, that you can essentially stop. Um, Gaspari's study does not suggest that. Um, his study had three patients, and although this was just 0.6%, but three patients initially had no cardiac activity, and they still survived to hospital discharge. Um, so I don't think we're quite there yet to say absolutely you can stop, uh, but it is, uh, it, it is associated with non-survival. Gotcha. All right. And now we would be remiss if we didn't talk about intra-arrest intra arterial lines um, as uh, kind of a surrogate for pulse checks. Did you find any data about intra-arrest arterial lines? A little bit. Uh, so... I kind of went way back. Uh, I looked at an article from JAMA in 1990 uh, looking at coronary perfusion pressure. Uh, my colleagues are laughing at me, but uh, the, uh, the paper was, it was a great paper. Um, and so coronary perfusion pressure can be defined as the diastolic blood pressure uh, sub, uh, minus the central venous pressure. Uh, and so there had been some animal studies done that looked at this, and then this was the first human trial where they had 100 primarily out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients come into the, their ED, where they all got central lines and they all got A lines. Um, and they essentially looked for increased survival in terms of coronary perfusion pressure. Uh, and that's essentially exactly what they found. Uh, there was significant increase in ROSC, uh, when you had coronary perfusion pressures, uh, primarily greater than 15, but there was certainly a trend. Um, and the maximum coronary perfusion pressure of 15, if you did not reach that, no one survived. Gotcha. So how uh, did you guys find anything else in the last 25 years uh, that would corroborate this? Or what what uh, conclusions and recommendations yeah. did you make? So there's been a couple uh, animal studies since then. There's a porcine study that compared uh, hemodynamic-directed uh, resuscitation using a coronary perfusion pressure of 20 uh, and comparing that to just kind of standard ACLS, standard uh, compression depth. Uh, and they also found that uh, of those pigs who were put into cardiac arrest, uh, those that had that hemodynamic directed resuscitation all sustained ROSC uh, uh, in, in much better than the other group. Uh, and then most recently, there was a pediatric study um, just this year that was across 11 institutions. These were pediatric patients in the ICU setting already with arterial lines in place. Um, and their goal was to try to correlate a diastolic blood pressure with increased survival. And they did find that in um, infants less than one, a, yeah, I know, less than one. Um, infants less than one with a, goal diastolic blood pressure of 25 and then between 1 and 19 a goal diastolic pressure blood pressure of 30 uh, was associated with increased survival and increased survival with good neural outcomes got it 
Um, so when do you recommend in this process, or did you see anything about when in this process we should start to initiate A-lines? So I think the earlier the better. Um, it's going to help you uh, have not as long prolonged pulse checks when you have an A-line in place and can just get that real-time feedback. Um, our recommendation, just given um, the separate teams in place when they arrive, is that you do it after that full, first pulse check is someone's putting that A-line in. Got it. So that's pretty early, but getting the practice, and it's a nice actually segue into um, something that is coming into Vogue and certainly would require um, a large bore A-line, which would be eCPR. Um, Dr. Gauger, this was in your review. What did you see about uh, initiation and indications for eCPR? Yeah, um, so just a few definitions. Um, eCPR is VA ECMO in cardiac arrest. Um, VA ECMO is obviously venous, arterial, extracorporeal, membranous oxygenation. So using an ECMO circuit for oxygenation during cardiac arrest. Um, and the evidence, there's been several small studies um, over the last uh, 15 to 20 years or so. Most of the studies only show 20 or so out-of-hospital uh, cardiac arrest patients. I think there's about 10 of them. Um, but all of these studies, except for one, show increased survival to hospital discharge and increased uh, neurointact rates. There was a study in Italy that did not um, show that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what, what was different about their patient population. Um, there, the two most recent and most um, widely publicized trials on eCPR were the CHEER trial. Um, so CHEER is mechan was mechanical CPR, hypothermia, eCPR, and early reperfusion. This was a 2014 study out of Australia. Um, the study had 26 patients, 11 of them were out of hospital cardiac arrest, 15 in hospital. Uh, 24 out of those 26 ultimately were placed on ECMO circuit. Um, one additional achieved ROSC before being placed on circuit, so they were cannulated and got ROSC before being placed on circuit. Um, but 25 total patients out of the 26 achieved ROSC. 13 of the 24 that went on circuit were ultimately weaned. Um, so including that one that achieved ROSC before, there were 14 neurointact survivals out of their 26 patients, which is significantly better than um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest numbers um, otherwise with what we call conventional CPR. Uh, Have there been any direct compar comparative studies between conventional resuscitation and eCPR in the setting of presumably a very select baseline high-functioning patient population selected to go on circuit? So there has not there have not been randomized control trials, but the Minnesota experience. So the, the this was the Minnesota Resuscitation Consortium Advanced Perfusion and Reperfusion Cardiac Life Support Strategy for Out of Hospital Cardiac VFib. What they did is they took a uh, controlled match or they took a matched cohort from before they initiated this um, uh, protocol. Uh, similar patient characteristics, same patients, um, and. What they showed is that um, they had significantly improved um, survival to admission. 78% of their uh, patients that went through this protocol, their protocol is very similar to the CHEER protocol. So it was mechanical compression, eCPR, early um, uh, reperfusion, and hypothermia. 78% um, of them survived to admission in this study, whereas before they were in the uh, 5 to 12% range. Um, depending on the specific cohort they looked at. 
um, 55% survived to discharge and 58% had a good neural outcome. Now this was only 18 patients. Um, it was three months of data. It was their first three months and they haven't published data since then. Um, but this is, uh, to date, the largest U.S. study uh, for eCPR. And like I said, it was 18 patients total were uh, enrolled. 15 of them went on circuit. Nine of them uh, were neurointact at discharge. And much as we are improving this process and you guys have worked hard on this protocol, as you start to build these protocols, you get significantly better at the regimentation and your team's ability to work these patients. Um, did they? Did the patients that were matched, did they undergo the same mechanical CPR and uh, hypothermia? Were the rest of the protocols relatively well matched? Yes, the mechanical CPR and hypothermia protocols were identical. The difference in the protocol was the early reperfusion. So these patients actually in the Minnesota, they're getting, um, they're primarily bypassing the emergency department. They're getting cannulated in the cath lab. So almost all of them are getting coronary angiography immediately. That's the early reperfusion portion. Um, so obviously, prior to that, patients were coming into the emergency department. They weren't necessarily going immediately to the cath lab. Gotcha. So on the brink, if available at the institution, certainly seems, at least in early studies, to be effective. Um, ECPR, when initiated early in a select patient population. Um, let's talk about the fan favorite of cardiac arrest, the data-laden use of vasoactive medications in the setting of cardiac arrest. Absolutely. Um, so cardiac arrest, AHA guidelines, epi has been, um, epinephrine has been the, the stalwart of um, cardiac arrest medications. Uh, the original data for epinephrine was in uh, canine models. Um, and the reason epinephrine became, came into favor is because it showed significant improvement in cardio, uh, coronary perfusion. Um, and after that initial data came out, it became an AHA recommendation for cardiac arrest, and there were ethical con issues for ever studying it in a randomized controlled fashion. Um, until an Australian study in 2012 um, it was the first ever and to date only randomized controlled trial for epinephrine and, and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, it, like I said, it was Jacobs et al. It was an Italian, er, uh, Australian study. And what their study showed uh, was improvement in ROS, uh, definitely a significant improvement in ROS, 23.5% um, in the epinephrine group versus 8.4% in the placebo group for an odds ratio of 3.4%. Um, what it failed to show was any patient-centered outcome differences. Um, so patients surviving to hospital discharge, again, these were out of hospital cardiac arrest, or to hospital admission um, was slightly higher, but not statistically significant. To hospital discharge, again, slightly higher, 4% versus 1.9%, not statistically significant. And their study showed slightly worse neuro-intact survival rates, actually. And as an update, since this was recorded, there was a large trial, the Paramedic 2 trial, which has been circulating around, published in the New England Journal in July of this year. Large, double-blinded, randomized trial of 8,014 patients out of the UK by Perkins et al. Uh, at the 30-day mortality, 3.2% survival in the epinephrine group and 2.4% in the placebo group. And that was statistically significant. However, 
31% of those patients that were discharged in the epinephrine group had severe neurologic deficits as opposed to 17.8%. Uh, so significant increase in the survival, however, was with significant neurologic deficits. So will this change the guidelines or not? We'll have to see. Uh, but it really does not validate the use of epinephrine in the undifferentiated population as far as creating a neurologically intact uh, discharged population. How about uh, the other drugs that we commonly use? So amiodarone, uh, vasopressin, if you still choose to believe it, um, uh, bicarbonate. So vasopressin is, um, as most people know, was taken out of the HA guidelines, um, the ACLS guidelines in 2015. Um, vasopressin, like epinephrine, did show improvement in ROSC and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and again, no improvement in patient-centered outcomes. Um, the AHA guidelines dropped it because several studies came out comparing it to epinephrine in combination with epinephrine or each one of them alone. Um, and vasopressin in combination with epinephrine showed no advantage um, and was slightly worse compared to placebo than epinephrine. Uh, so it is no longer recommended to use in cardiac arrest. Amiodarone um, does not have great data. Uh, there are several studies on amiodarone that do not show um, significant improvement um, in any patient-centered outcomes. Uh, there is a large study that from 2016 that showed improvement in survival to hospital admission, but the odds ratio was only 1.4. Um, the confidence interval that was almost crossing one, so it's it's not a significant uh, difference. We still recommend it as well as the ACLS guidelines to give a 300 milligram IV bolus for ventricular fibrillation or, pulse, or pulseless VTAC. Um, amiodarone, as we know in other studies, not cardiac arrest, can directly cardiovert, and it may actually increase rates of defibrillation. Um, so there may be some underlying benefit that's not being captured in the data, so it is still recommended to give a 300 milligram bolus of amiodarone. A couple of the other drugs um, that are talked about in ACLS, um, calcium and bicarb. Um, bicarb has a lot of data showing that it actually has no improvement in ROSC and no improvement in survival um, when you consider all comers. But we know for select patient populations like TCA overdoses or hyperkalemia that bicarb is an important uh, medication to give, um, which is why in certain cardiac arrest situations we still recommend giving bicarb, but we recommend using your available data, looking at the patient in front of you and not just giving it for all comers. Calcium likewise has a lack of evidence showing any um, patient-centered outcomes in all comers. But just like uh, bicarb, calcium has certain situations where we know not in cardiac arrest that it's useful, such as uh, hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, or um, sodium channel blockade, uh, calcium channel blockers, beta, beta blockers. Um, so in those situations um, where that is a high likelihood of the cause of cardiac arrest, we still recommend giving it. But again, looking at the patient and treating the patient in front of you and not giving it to all comers. And is there any other drugs not traditionally kind of considered in our ACLS protocol, at least, uh, that we're talking about this individual patient in front of you that uh, has arrested with or without a cause that you suspect uh, that would be beneficial? Yeah. Um, so 
this is where we're talking about thrombolytics. Um, we are. Thrombolytics, when given to all comers, has shown uh, no improvement and probably significant del- deleterious effects. Um, not only um, do, do thrombolytics increase uh, bleeding, but it also prevents things like eCPR. Um, you're not going to want to stick a large cannula in somebody who's just received a big both dose of TPA. Uh, there was a uh, study recently in 2016, the PPET study, study um, looking at thrombolytics and cardiac arrest. The patient population in that study was, were patients with confirmed pulmonary embolism who subsequently suffered a cardiac arrest event. Um, the study, 23 patients uh, total in the study received uh, IV TPA. What they gave was 50 milligrams IV push. Um, of IV, IV TPA. Um, out of those 23 patients who suffered this cardiac arrest event with a known pulmonary embolism, 22 of them achieved ROSC. They had no uh, major or minor bleeding um, uh, negative effects. 21 of them survived to hospital discharge, and 20 out of the 23 actually survived to a mean of 22 months post-hospital discharge. Uh, so there is good evidence, although small patient population um, showing that IV TPA in cardiac arrest with a known pulmonary embolism uh, significantly improves ROSC and patient-centered outcomes. So extrapolating that to patients who we have a high suspicion of pulmonary embolism causing their cardiac arrest, so these are the patients coming in with either a malignancy history or known clotting disorder or obvious clinical signs um, such as uh, DVT or ultrasound signs depending on uh, interpretation of that data, where thrombolytics may be a reasonable option. Um, All right, so we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about ultrasound, eCPR, and medications that we can use in the setting of essentially undifferentiated cardiac arrest, moving well beyond what ACLS recommends. What did you guys learn about the process? What do you think, uh, how did this change your management when you're um, managing patients downstairs? Yeah, I think it's important to develop a game plan and treat the patient in front of you. Um, Two separate things. Developing a game plan, knowing who's on your team, either at the start of a shift or when you get pre-notification of a cardiac arrest coming in. Know who your airway person is going to be. Know who your ultrasound person is going to be. Know who's going to be placing your A-lines. Know who's getting pads on, doing compressions. Having the leader at the head of of bed, uh, foot of bed. um, Have have an idea of what's going on. Using the data in front of you... um, whether it be the initial presenting rhythm, ultrasound data that you may have, and tidal CO2, A-line data that you may have, and use that to make your um, treatment decisions. Um, Things that we know we should be doing are high-quality compressions. We need to limit our pauses. We need to have a good idea of when we're having our pulse checks, who's feeling for a pulse, or what are we using to get that uh, look for that pulse check. We need to... Um, early defib or early shock are shockable rhythms um, and use the available um, treatments that we have in front of us whether that be epinephrine um, early um, whether that be thrombolytics in a high in a high suspicion of PE um, and if your institution has it considering ECMO in these refractory um, refractory VFib VTAC patients. 
Yeah, I'll echo all that. Uh, and I'll just add that uh, using ultrasound early gets you a lot of information. It gets you a look inside uh, when otherwise you're just kind of blind to history and rhythms. Um, you're going to catch uh, a fair amount of what you think is PEA is actually organized cardiac activity. Um, you may think is asystole and it's a fine, fine uh, V-fib. Uh, you may find quite a bit of reversible um causes of the arrest, such as a large pericardial effusion or significant right heart dilation or even clot visible in the right heart. Um, and uh, it gives you a fair amount of prognostication as well. Uh, but yeah, I would echo kind of early compressions, good compressions, early defibrillation, um, and everything else we talked about. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Hardy and Dr. Garver for sitting down. Thank you all for listening, uh, for Taming the Shrew. My name is Ron LaFollette, and we'll see you next time.